Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. A southern preacher. Now, have you noticed it's always a southern preacher? Always is. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, this particular southern preacher once said that there were two things that he never, ever wanted to be. One, the front row of a Christian church. <laughs> Secondly, the third verse of in a Christian hymnal from a Christian hymnal because neither of them ever gets used. My imagination kicked in when I saw that and I began to wonder, what if any of those could talk? What, what might they say to us? Hey, what did I do to deserve this? Or how would you like it if everyone ignored you? Or maybe even my seats are just as comfortable or my verse is just as inspired. What's the problem? The truth is, I think we all have this innate desire to be useful. I think we really do. I, none of us enjoy being ignored. Wouldn't that be true? Yes. Not a single one of us like to be ignored, and I really think we do have this inward desire to be useful. If you could ask any NFL player, would they prefer being the highest paid backup or the lowest paid player, which do you think they would choose? I think hands down, it would be, put me in coach. <laughs> I'm ready to play, right? They, they would much rather be on the field in the action rather than on the sidelines watching the action. Interestingly though, this is often not so much the case how I many of you know what I'm about to say in the church? It seems that there are far, far too many Christians who think that Christianity and church ministry is nothing more than a spectator sport. They seem to have no problem watching a small percentage do all the work. I really liked what Howard Hendricks once said. He said, the church is too much like a football game. 55,000 people in the stands, desperately in need of exercise, and 22 people on the field, desperately in need of rest. <laughs> Paul is going to remind us that we were all called with a purpose, with a mission in mind, you weren't saved just for your own self's sake. You were saved for the kingdom of God's sake. And church becomes one of those ways to serve the Lord and others. And actually, I don't know if you've thought of it like this, but this is, I think, a pretty interesting right-on attitude to, to maintain with regards to serving in a church in some way, shape, or form, even if it's just being friendly, even if it's just smiling and saying hi to someone, how was your week? Um, what's going on? How might I be able to pray for you? Even if it was that, it would be good, right? But it, I want you to see, here's the attitude, that it's a great way to start your week. 
serving God and serving others and then allowing that to carry over into the rest of your week. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that's an awesome way to, to start the week right here in serving. And Marilyn mentioned the various ways that folks serve and and she uh, and, and I knew what I'd be saying today. And remember what she, a little bit ago she said, if you don't do anything, we still love you and all that. And I thought to myself, wait till they have to, have to hear what I have to say. <laughs> but it doesn't change the fact that you are loved. It's the perfect way to start the week. The church was never intended to be like the movie theaters. How many of you like going to movie theaters? Probably everybody. But you know what? It was never intended to be like that, where we can go and watch a movie, be surrounded by people. Isn't that something? But never, ever have to have eye contact and never, ever have to make any kind of connection, never interacting, never any sharing with one another. You can just go and leave and not have to do anything with anybody. And let's not forget our Lord and Savior came to give not to take, amen? amen, to serve, not to be served. He is our model. He is our example. He is our teacher. If his goal was to serve, then I think certainly ours must be as well. What do you think? Make sense? Biblical sense? Last week, we saw how in first three chapters of Ephesians, where we've been in the Ephesian letter, Paul theologically laid out for us the fact that when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we become his kids. We become children of God. And then we mentioned starting off the second half of his letter, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul basically says, you are a child of God. I just laid that off for you in the first three chapters. Now here, I want you to know that it's time to act like it. You guys remember that? And that's kind of what Paul is saying to us here. In, in that, where, where we were last week in the first part of chapter 4. It says, you were a child of God, you are a child of God, now it's time to act like a child of God, to walk a walk that is worthy of our calling in a manner that honors our King, our God, our Lord, our Savior. Our actions, our lives are supposed to match up with what we say we believe, Correct? Now, as we pick it up at verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul shows us what acting like it looks like. To walk a walk worthy of our calling, to live a life, and here's what the act like, what it looks like is. It's a life of service and ministry, okay? The act like it is a life of service and ministry. Paul shows us the kind of team that God puts together and how he has specifically and specially equipped the team in order to be effective. So let's pick it up at verse 7. It says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. What we see here already off the bat is gifts are the equipment that are given by God for His team. Gifts, spiritual gifts, 
Now, the word grace here in verse 7 can also be translated gift. It can also be translated as ministry. All three of those work in that same Greek word. And But did you notice that it says to each one of us? To each one of us. In other words, nobody has been left out. Nobody has an excuse as a member of the body of Christ, as a member of God's team. You have been equipped. You have been outfitted, if you will, with a special grace, a special gift, a special ministry designed especially for you to be a special blessing to others. We have already noted when we were back in the second chapter of this letter, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, which says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This tells us that our initial gift from the Lord is the gift of salvation, which we are thankful for. Amen? Allowing us to have an amazing relationship with Jesus. But what we want to pick up on here and make sure we do not miss that there are other gifts that follow the gift of salvation, spiritual gifts of service. He's letting us know that every single member of the team is equipped. We weren't saved to stagnate or to sit on the sidelines. We were saved and gifted and equipped to serve throughout. In His infinite wisdom, Christ has given different gifts to different people. Every believer has at least one gift. Some, you come across some that might have two or three. Nobody has them all. This is by His wisdom because in this way, believers need one another. I need what you have. You might need what I have and so on and so forth. And that's the beauty of it. By God's design, believers need one another in the church as they seek to accomplish the work of the kingdom of God. It is important to note what is meant by spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift does not mean the natural ability or talent of a person. God, of course, keeps natural abilities and talents in mind when He gifts a person. But spiritual gifts are special gifts given to believers for the acts of service. So, for example, a follower of Christ may have a talent for, for, for music or playing an instrument or singing, but a special gift, spiritual gift of, ministry, of mercy in order to reach out with compassion and mercy to someone who is hurting. See the difference there. In chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul prayed what we refer to as his oneness prayer. 
He said there was one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We talked about unity last week and the importance of it. But here we are also finding out that unity is only part of the picture. Paul also insists that unity is not the same as uniformity. Instead, the perfect picture of the church is diversity within unity. Make sense? This is why he has gifted with the various gifts to the various people so that it might be a healthy body and function the way he has always intended for church and the body of Christ to function. Diversity in unity, each person working in his or her unique capacity toward a common goal. We are all united in Christ and because of Christ, but there are differences amongst us due to the different gifts that we've been given. In our physical bodies, just as an example, you know this, our hands function differently than our eyes and our eyes function differently than our feet, but they all work together for a common goal, right? So too, in the body of Christ, each part functions in a unique way according to the gift each has been given. And please understand that while some gifts seem to get a little bit more visibility than others, it does not mean that there was gifts that are more important than others. They are all equally important. Every single one of them. You have been called by God saved by the death and resurrection of Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit, the immeasurable grace of God has been extended to you personally. Please don't let that just go right on over your heads. I'm going to repeat that, and I want you to take that into the very depths of your heart. The immeasurable grace of God has been extended to you as an individual, as a child of God. Too many Christians, however, settle for the grace of salvation, saving grace, and never realize that God has also given them the grace of sanctification, which is an enabling grace. Though we have been given Christ's gift, which places us in the body of Christ. Many Christians fail to receive Christ's gifts, as I've been mentioning here, which equip us to minister in and to the body of Christ and beyond. Note another significant point. Jesus Christ gives us the grace to use the gifts. I mean, how amazing is that? Not only is he the gift giver, he also is the gift empowerer. Is there such a word? <laughs> Grace means the strength, the wisdom and courage and motivation, love, concern, care and power. All the favor and blessings of God. Whatever is needed to use the gift that you've been given, Christ gives us. 
He measures out the exact amount of grace needed for the maximum use of the gift. No one is overlooked. Everyone is important to and for the building up of the church, the edifying of the body of Christ, the health and the unity of the community of faith. Although Christians are called to be unified, God in His wisdom did not make believers photocopies of one another. Just isn't the case. Let's look at verse 8 now. And we are getting into some scripture here that um, are some of those that are, they have been difficult to translate for centuries. <laughs> Scholars are all over the place, commentaries all over the place, but we're going to tackle it. Verse 8, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. And then we'll get to 9 and 10 and it is... Um, just as mysterious, if you will. But what we are seeing here in verse 8, that we will put it like this, and then we'll explain it. We are our victors, our victor Jesus. We are our victors' captives. We were once captive to evil and sin, but we've been rescued. Amen? Amen. We've been redeemed, but we still remain captives to Him only not in a bondage slave kind of way, yes, but not how it was in sin. But now we are free to serve him as his captives. Verse 8 is saying that to us. The phrase, this is why it says in the original language, actually comes out to be a favorite rabbinic introduction to a scriptural quotation. The rabbis loved this saying, and they would start off with this saying. It conveys and it reaffirms the divine authority of Scripture. That's what they're doing when they start that way. Because what I'm about to say with regard to Scripture, I'm affirming it's divine, it's from God, it's God's Word. God breathed kind of thing, okay? So Paul paraphrases here in verse 8 a verse from Psalm 68, verse 18 applying an important Old Testament image to his New Testament context here. Now, here's what that verse says in Psalm 68, verse 18. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord God, might dwell there. Psalm 68 is a victory hymn composed by David to celebrate the conquest of an enemy city. It is believed that an enemy city being referred to in actual, in actual life in David's life was a Jebusite city that he had conquered. It describes a, a victory parade up Mount Zion, Jerusalem in other words, going beyond the literal historical victory parade to attribute the victory to God is what David is doing in Psalm 68. Therefore, it talks about a figurative victory parade with God ascending not up Mount Zion, but all the way to heaven. Historically, it was typical after a king won a significant military victory to bring back the spoils of war. 
That was typical. That's what happened, including enemy prisoners to display to his people. In addition, however, if there were any of his own soldiers from their own nation, their own country, who had previously been captured by the enemy, whom he has just defeated, they have gone in there and rescued them, and they too would be a part of the parade when they got back to hometown and so that the people would see and, and, and celebrate, obviously, right? And these folks were often referred to as recaptured captives. And when they would re obviously were come back home, they would be set free. But I want you to notice something. They would be set free in order to serve in their kingdom, their king, once again. But can you imagine the depths of their gratitude and their gratefulness in their willingness to say to their king, thank you so much for rescuing me. I get to be home. I'm with my family again. I'm with my friends again. And my life belongs to you. I will serve you. I will do whatever you call me to do till, the, till my dying breath. I'm yours. That's gratitude. Are you seeing where this is going? As it relates to us, the children of God who are to act like the children of God in service and in ministry. Paul used the picture that he finds in Psalm 68 to explain how Christ conquered his enemies. <laughs> Hallelujah, right? Did that on our behalf, conquered his enemies, returned to glory, and in the process bestowed gifts on his people. That's what it says right there. <laughs> David pictures God ascending, God the Lord, God's Son, Jesus, ascending to heaven after having been victorious against his earthly enemies and freeing those who had been captive to the forces of evil and sin, held us in bondage. The captivity brought death, or it was bringing death, wasn't it? To us, Paul has already explained that. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but he rescued us, delivered us, and brought us into his marvelous life. That captivity was leading to death due to the trespass and sin, but we are now, as I said a moment ago, our victors, captives. We've been bought with the price, haven't we, folks? The blood that was shed at Calvary paid for our sin. We've been bought. And you've heard me say this before. We are no longer our own. We belong to Him. We're His captives. But He captivates us, rescues us, captivates us, and then sets us free, free to do what? From the depths of our hearts with gratitude, saying, Jesus, I am yours. And until my last breath, I will serve you with everything that is within me. Let's read on verses 9 and 10. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended 
to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Paul sees Psalm 68 as a foreshadow of Christ and interpreted in light of the life, death, and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Ascended to uh, refers to Jesus' ascension from earth to heaven, obviously. We see that and we read about that in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He did that in front of a crowd too, didn't he? His disciples and those who were gathered with him, they watched him just kind of lift off of earth and they watched him disappear into the clouds. He ascended from earth to heaven to reign forever with his Father. But not only himself, because his ascension also meant our ascension, folks. We need to be thankful that he did do that. Amen? Because his ascension is also our ascension since he brought, it says, former prisoners with him. He took captives with him. Those captives represent us and others who have lived before us. He brought former prisoners with him. And as was said in chapter 2, verse 6, he seated them with him in the heavenly realms. We came across that already. Paul reasoned that Christ's ascent implies a previous descent. The phrase lower earthly regions, this is where it gets really kind of, what? <laughs> what is that all about? Represents the farthest extreme. This term lower earthly regions represents the farthest extreme from the heights of heaven. But the question is, how extreme? What is meant by this? Obviously, there are many ideas, many interpretations of what Paul meant. In my opinion, it boils down to at least three <laughs> that become somewhat realistic options. I'll share them with you. First, perhaps the descent refers to the incarnation. In other words, in which the divine Son of God descended from heaven to take on a human nature. Paul's words here, if this were the case, would be then parallel to something he wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, which says, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In this case, the phrase descended to the lower earthly regions could be translated or understood to mean into the lower parts, meaning the earth. Ascended to heaven, descended to earth. And, and then these who subscribe to this interpretation have a subcategory attached to this, attached to their view. Some say that Paul could have meant the tomb in which Jesus was placed into, being that place. In any case, the earthly physical sphere would be what Paul had in view according to that view. Also, perhaps, second one, 
the descent refers to events following Christ's ascension when the Holy Spirit descended upon the church at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 was where we see that. This would be similar to Christ's promise to send the Holy Spirit after he had ascended to the Father coming to them in the spiritual sense through the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit's presence in the church. Jesus talked about that in John chapter 14. And then, third option, there's the view that considers the descent referring to the time between Christ's death and resurrection. Many Christians believe that after His death on the cross, Christ descended into the place of what is known and referred to as departed spirits proclaiming victory over wicked spirits in bondage and then leading Old Testament saints on a victorious ascent to heaven. Peter writes something interesting in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 19 that would support this. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Peter. Now, according to Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus found in Luke 16... We see there in that parable that the rich man had all of the things one could want in this life. He had luxury galore and then died. And it says that he went to Hades to that place of torment. Lazarus was this poor guy who was just looking for scraps off somebody's table. And it even describes him being so full of sores that dogs would come and lick his sores in the parable that Jesus tells. He also dies. But it says of him that the angels came and carried him to what the NIV calls Abraham's side. The New King James Version refers to it as Abraham's bosom. Well, what is this? Long time forever Jewish tradition ascribes that as paradise. That place where the Old Testament saints were held. They couldn't go to heaven yet because Jesus had not come yet to die and become the ultimate sacrifice for everyone's sin. After Jesus died, he went to that place where Abraham was led by this interpretation. The Old Testament believers into heaven were there. Couldn't go into the presence of God yet, as I've just said. And then somehow in this amazing ascension, as he's bringing the captives with him, as described here in Ephesians 4, somehow in that process, he gives gifts to his people. But here's what is amazing about that, amongst other things. I think this is amazing because three days after he was crucified, by who? Us. Did we not put him there because of our sin? This is amazing. 
three days after he was crucified by us, for we all turned our backs on him. Isaiah says, for we all like sheep had gone astray, our Lord being constantly good and faithful, so generous, amazingly merciful and kind, he does not heap on us all the grief and all of the guilt that we deserve. What does he do instead? He heaps upon us gifts, spiritual gifts. Why <laughs> would he do that? Because the ascension wasn't a one-time ascension, but an ongoing one through the ages kind of ascension. God's people would need to be gifted to do the work of the ministry so that others through time could come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and become a part of this victorious ascension of Christ. How amazing is that? I personally lean, if you're, you're probably sitting there, well, Dave, which one of those do you buy into? Because they're all good, and they all make sense, and can biblically, you know, in some way or other, kind of say, yeah, I think that's the one, but typically I, I lean toward that third one, toward the interpretation, the view of Christ's descent into the spiritual realm known as paradise between his death and resurrection. It is extremely ancient and enduring in the history of the church. In fact, the Apostles' Creed, recited by countless churches worldwide for a long, long time, states that Christ was crucified, dead, buried, and descended into the earth. And it is in keeping with some other things that Jesus said himself, such as Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus speaking. And the already mentioned Luke 16 parable passage where Jesus referred to Hades and Abraham's paradise. Nevertheless, the emphasis of this passage we would be missing it if we got hung up on the dissension part because the emphasis is on the uh, ascension part. No matter how scholars may disagree on verse 9, they are literally all agreed on verse 10. I love this. Christ ascended to the Father so that he might fill the whole universe. Watch this now. This is so cool. This last phrase tells us that Christ did not ascend simply to leave the world behind him. Rather, he ascended so that he might expand his presence and his influence in the world by way of the Holy Spirit. How exactly could he accomplish that? By being at the right hand of the Father where he now resides? Through the gifts that he distributes to his people in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. Is our God a good God or what? I like what one writer 
has said, referring to this passage that we've looked at. He says, there are great enemies of mankind. Enemies that attack time and time again. Enemies that try to make our lives aimless and meaningless. There is this great enemy of alienation and separation. Alienation is the energy and tendency that tries to shut God and others out of a person's life. Tragically, alienation results in a sense of emptiness, uselessness, and meaninglessness. However, Christ has gone to war on our behalf. Amen? We are so thankful. Christ has conquered all enemies that make life useless and meaningless. And now he gives the greatest gift of all, the gift of meaning and purpose and significance in this life. He fills life with all that we could possibly ever desire and use. The gift of himself and the gifts for service and ministry causing our lives to be filled with joy and contentment, purpose, and meaning. In a devotional called Our Daily Bread, I came across this encouraging thought. It said, Hollywood gives us larger-than-life spies who are dashing drivers of flashy Aston Martins and other luxury sports cars. But Jonah Mendez, a former CIA chief, paints an opposite picture of the real thing. An agent must be, these are her words, the little gray man, she says. Someone, and I really like this term, nondescript, not flashy. You want them to be forgettable. The best agents are those least likely to appear as an agent. When two of Israel's spies slipped into Jericho. It was Rahab who hid them, right? We know the story. And what makes this so interesting is the fact that she was seemingly the least likely person for God to employ as an espionage agent. For she had three strikes against her from the get-go. One, she's a Canaanite. Secondly, she's a woman. Thirdly, she's a prostitute. Yet Rahab has started to believe in the God of the Israelites. And that's how we read it in Joshua. It says that she had believed in the God of the Israelites, the God of heaven and the God who fills the earth. Her, her, her testimony it was her statement. She hid God's spies under flax in her roof, assisting in their daring escape. And God rewarded her faith, as you know. Joshua spared her life, but not only hers, her family's as well. Sometimes we might feel we're the least likely to ever be used by God. Perhaps we have some physical limitations, don't feel flashy enough to be out there and be used by God or, or have maybe even a tarnished past. But history... Our Bibles, church, are filled 
with nondescript people. Amen. Who God placed his hand on, equipped to do a mission, to serve a purpose for him. Our Bibles are filled with story after story of the least likely chose by God to be used by him. He has divine purposes for every single one of us. Even those amongst us who think of ourselves as the least likely. I want to say it like this. We are God's A-team. <laughs> we are uniquely equipped for the mission. And I want you to know something. There is no such thing as a B-team in God's perspective. Are you hearing me? Every single one of us. His A-team. No such thing as a B-team. And so we, may we take on an attitude that Irma Bombeck, how many of you remember Irma Bombeck? <laughs> she referred to this once when she wrote, when I stand before God at the end of my life, I would hope that I would not have a single bit of gift or talent left and could say, I used everything that you gave me. Wow. May that be our heart's desire. May we live that way. No longer seeing this as a spectator sport but involved, utilizing that unique gift that God has placed in us to be used for his kingdom and his glory. Amen. Amen. Father, we come before you this morning and we just want to say thank you that we really can consider ourselves as recaptured captives you came, you found us, you sought us out, you rescued us from the bondage of our sin and death, and you set us free. Still your captives, but yet free to choose to serve you, to utilize everything that you have placed within us to be used for your kingdom and your glory. This isn't about us. This is about you. It is about others. It is about your kingdom. It is about seeing to it that others are informed about the saving grace of Jesus Christ so that they too can be a part of your ascension to join with you and be with you for eternity in your presence. God, I pray that you move in our hearts, that you get us out of the stands and onto the field and into the action. This is what you have called us and saved us for. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, 
please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up, lift up my heart.